Well, as we've been saying, our guest speaker for the weekend is Craig Cabanis uh, from Grace Church in Frisco, Texas. So that's one of our sister churches in Trinity Fellowship Churches. There's nine churches now, kind of a Gideon's Army approach to building a denomination, but we've got nine, and uh, so Frisco is uh, one of our sister churches, and that's one of the churches where we, um, we've got three churches where we kind of rotate through the conferences right now, so Frisco, our church, and then Lancaster, PA. So we've gotten to know maybe more about their church than we would have otherwise. In terms of, uh, Craig, some, some bio things, you, can, you get a, a sense of who's talking to you. So he's, he's been married to Ginger for 36 years. They've got four adult children, four grandchildren. So he attended Baylor University as an undergrad, and then he got his MDiv from Fuller Seminary in California. And then from Fuller, he served as a staff pastor in Pasadena, California. And then he planted a church in San Diego, California, and then after 10 years of that, he planted the Frisco Church in 2005. So he's been there ever since. Born in Houston, so he's a Texas boy who came home to plant the Frisco Church. I asked Phil, uh, Phil couldn't be here this uh, weekend, but I asked Phil, uh, who has uh, a longer history with Craig than I do. I've known Craig from a distance. He was always that, uh, that effective speaker with the great voice. Uh, gifted communicator that I would know at conferences, you know, from a distance. So worship conferences and other times. So great, great teacher. Um, Phil worked with him on some kind of some high-level denominational leadership situations. And uh, so his, so his uh, comments, he said, first I knew him as a very doctrinally sound preacher with a great voice. But then, being in denominational leadership positions with him, I learned that he was well-respected by other leaders for good reasons. He's got a real commitment to fairness, integrity, and justice, and yet he also has the heart of a peacemaker. And even in the, the time that we've had together the last three years in Trinity, that's, that's become evident in how he carries himself, how he speaks up at, uh, at our denominational meetings, how he handles himself in some thorny situations. So we, we're just really glad to have you, Craig. It's really a treat uh, to get to know you more and, and have you known to our church. So please come. Well, uh, it's great to be with you guys, and uh, thanks for having me. I've already enjoyed the time we had. Last night was a blast, and uh, it's been great to meet some of you, and I look forward to getting to know more of you over the weekend. Uh, I really do. Uh, and I, my respect, uh, I know of your church. I've actually been in your building for, like uh, Daniel said, for some of the meetings that we've had as TFC's been forming, but I've never been there on a Sunday till this Sunday, so I really look forward to that. Um, I, I know your leaders, Phil, everything he just said was very meaningful because of my respect for him. And uh, I, I deeply love Phil and um, have worked closely with him and uh, laughed with him and maybe cried with him, I don't know. But we, we've been through a lot together, and I really have the highest respect for him and Daniel as well, who I'm getting to know, I know, but I'm getting to know better. And I've, I've, I know all of your elders a little, uh, you know. And so uh, you guys are in good hands. I respect your leadership, and it, they, uh, they speak so highly of me to have an opportunity to be with you. So I look forward to just getting to know the whole church on Sunday and you this, this weekend. Um, uh, as, as he mentioned, I have been married to Ginger for 36 years, and she's not here. So I have no accountability. I can say anything about my marriage. <laughs> And no one here knows I didn't offer Daniel her number. Nobody can text her and see if any of this is true. No, I, I just was aware of that and said, you know what, I, I'm, I'm not going to. Uh, did that, is this cutting out a little bit or? Okay. 
I'm not going to say anything good about me as a husband because there is no accountability. And you guys, well, I don't know, his wife wasn't there. I'd, I'd like to hear that from her. Uh, so there is some accountability uh, over together. Approach is it's maybe a little different what we're going to do in terms of what maybe you've experienced um, at a sort of marriage retreat type of uh, situation before. This this might be different. Um, I, uh, I hope it'll be helpful and effective, but maybe it's a little bit different because what I'm trying to do, here's the big idea over these three sessions, is that each of us have our own story, don't we? We have a story of our own lives, where we come from, family we grew up in, uh, how we met our spouse, um, how we dated, how long we've been married. There's, there's as many stories in the room as there are people. Uh, and so we each kind of have our own marriage story, but the Bible has an overarching story in it, the story of God, we might call it, uh, that the scripture is one sort of continuous story. And, and what I want to do this, this weekend is look at the idea of how our individual stories connect to the greater story, the, the, the story that, of what God is accomplishing uh, in, in his universe as he works to the day, as Ephesians says, where he will bring all things together, unite all things in Christ and heaven and earth. And so we're all headed to that point. And so I want to talk a little bit about that. And hopefully as this go on, if that sounds, uh, if that sounds uh, unclear, hopefully it will, uh, it will, it'll get clearer as we go. So I'm going to start with this first session. We're going to talk about the glory of marriage. And uh, in your outline there, I want to start with talking about the purpose of marriage. Now, it's, it's my feeling, my thought, that most of us ask what questions about marriage and, and how questions about marriage, but we don't often ask the why question. So we typically ask things like, how can I be a better husband? Or what is my role as a wife? Or maybe how do we improve our communication? Or what does the Bible say about sexual intimacy in marriage? And some of you may have come for those types of questions, and we'll touch on those kinds of things. Uh, and that it, it's, it can be very helpful to have sort of a workshop seminar approach where it's, you know, the entire thing is sort of uh, based on scripture, but kind of the how-tos and the what's, and we all learn from those kind of things, and that has value. But I wonder if we would really benefit, uh, perhaps even more, if we go back and ask the why question, why did God create marriage? The Bible tells us that in, in numbers of different places, but why did God create marriage? It's sort of the all-important purpose question that I think the what's and the how's are much easier to deal with um, when we have an agreed upon, as a couple, when we have a unified understanding of our why. What is our why as a couple? Why did God create marriage, and why are we married? Now, historically, people have answered the why question in very, very different ways. I just have some bulleted uh, historical reasons for marriage on your, on your outline there. You know, sometimes historically, especially among leaders, uh, marriage was to create a political or a tribe. I feel confident nobody in here got married because of tribal alignment uh, today. But that would have been, love wasn't important. Uh, you know, what was important is that these two uh, tribes have some kind of alignment by this bride and this groom. Or to maintain or raise one's cultural status. 
So cultural status might play in somewhat in the culture in America today uh, in terms of marriage, but, but the reality is we're not such a, um, you know, our system's not based such on class that people are overly conscious about where they fit in and who they marry. So that may not be as common in our culture today. Uh, to honor parental wishes like in an arranged marriage. We have a couple of couples in our church that they've both told me their marriage stories. Uh, they're both Indian and from India, and uh, both of them have arranged marriages. Uh, now, they, they were arranged marriages where each, each party had a veto, so it wasn't like, okay, you know, do this or die kind of thing. But uh, it was their parents met with somebody else, which I, I really like that idea personally as a dad with four kids. Why not arrange? But anyway... Uh, I know more than junior, right? So, uh, but anyway, so that, that was their, the, the why, I mean, they have biblical reasons for their marriage, but the ultimate why of this person was because of the wisdom of their parents and them wanting to honor their wishes. Very different than perhaps your why in marriage. Uh, another one would be to create a legitimate family uh, to perpetuate the lineage. So obviously, so that the lineage continues to sustain economic viability. Now today, people would you for smaller families to have economic viability, but historically, the larger the family, uh, the more, uh, that's what our culture would argue for a smaller family for that reason I'm saying. Uh, But historically, it would be for, uh, you know, economic viability had to do with how many kids you had. To legitimize sexual relations. So prior to the sexual revolution uh, in our country and many countries, you know, um, throughout history, the reality is that... uh, Sex before marriage was frowned upon culturally, and so uh, for a desire to be able to uh, have sexual, a sexual relationship with the one you love, people, that forced marriage in many contexts. Um, and in, in our society today, that wouldn't be the case, obviously. Uh, for family stability or societal order, you, when you read about marriage in the New Testament, it's helpful to think about what what in the Roman Empire, how marriage was viewed, not among Christians, but among the culture. So typically men, it was a very male-dominated kind of a culture, and uh, typically men uh, had three relationships. So they would visit a prostitute, typically a temple prostitute, uh, to kind of take care of their regular sexual desires or needs, as they would perceive them perhaps. Um, They had a mistress. That was for a romantic, a passionate romantic relationship. And then they would have a wife to produce legitimate children. So the purpose, the why for marriage in that context is procreation and legitimacy to the family. Uh, But their sexual relationship was was much, uh, often quite a bit outside the marriage relationship. Uh, Moving to more modern times, for romantic love, that's a reason, a why for marriage. To join one's soulmate, you know, we were meant to be, and I found the one. And so that's a concept. We we joined our lives. What's our why? Because we can't imagine life apart. We met the one and uh, joined together. Or for personal fulfillment, to be whole and happy. You know, the sentence, she completes me. So the why in marriage is I'm incomplete, I found her, marry her, and now I am a complete person. So maybe some of that reflects some of your whys and some of my whys, but the Bible has a a very perhaps different purpose for marriage uh, than some of the things on that list. And I want to think a little bit about the storyline of the Bible 
So I'm going to go back to this idea of story, and then we're going to talk about marriage in the storyline of the Bible. So this may be really basic for some folks in the room. This might be new, kind of a new idea for some folks in the room. But the way the Bible answers the why marriage question, I think we find God has a transcendent purpose for marriage, a lofty purpose for marriage, and I think we understand it. Uh, This will become clearer in a minute, but I think we understand it if we understand the storyline of the Bible. So early in the life of the church, I guess it was in the 400s, I don't know, um, Augustine was the first that I'm aware of that had the, kind of talked about the idea of the Bible having four chapters or four, there's four big idea, four big historic touch points, we could say, in the scripture, and they're on your outline there. Creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So creation, we all know what that is. Uh, In Genesis uh, 1, we find God creating the heavens and the earth by the word of his power. Uh, We find that uh, he creates Adam and Eve as the pinnacle of the creation, and they are joined together in a one flesh union and placed in a garden paradise Uh, where they serve sort of as vice regents over all of God's creation. So in in creation, we see the first humans created, and we see the institution of marriage created as well. In chapter 3 of Genesis, we find the fall. And that's where the first couple rebels against God, and all creation comes under a curse. Uh, The creation, God's wonderful creation that he made for his glory, it's infected with sin and death. And uh, from then on, everyone that is born is born under the uh, judgment of God, for we are all born sinners after the fall. So God creates everything perfectly, uh, and then everything is tragically tainted by sin and death because the first couple rebels. Well, after Adam and Eve sin in Genesis 3, immediately God promises redemption. That's the third area of the scripture, the third uh, in the timeline, the third uh, chapter of the storyline of the Bible. And in the garden, he promises that he'll send the one who will defeat the enemy who tempted uh, Adam and Eve. And that begins shortly after, well, uh, Abraham, well, shortly in the Bible, after 12 chapters into the Bible, uh, God chooses Abraham, and from his descendants, he makes a nation for himself that sort of culminates in the coming of Jesus Christ. Jesus comes to reverse that curse uh, from the garden, the curse that happened at the fall through his death and resurrection. And so now people that believe in Jesus are part of a new creation. We're now part of the new creation that will find its fulfillment in his return. And so we're in the age of redemption now as we await the consummation, which is his return where he will raise his people, will have glorified bodies, live in a new heaven and new earth, and we will all experience life the way it was meant to be lived. Perfect shalom is the biblical word of the life the way it is meant to be lived. So that's kind of the four big sections of the scripture. A simplified, in your outline I put this, a simplified way to think of it, which I'm basing sort of this marriage retreat material on, is ought is can will. The four big chapters of the Bible, creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. So creation is the way life ought to be. The fall is the way life is. That's what you and I experience on a daily basis. The fall is is. Redemption is the way life can be. So we are living in a fallen world, but now that Christ has forgiven us, 
given us new life, united us to himself, brought us into his new creation, given us his Holy Spirit. Now we can live differently by his power. And the consummation will be the way life will be when everything is uh, perfect. So ought is, can, will. So how does marriage connect uh, in God's story? Well, the, 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 um, the institution of marriage really connects to the overall storyline of the Bible. I have in your notes here, as we read through the story of the Bible, we see how marriage intersects with each of these stages in redemptive history. In creation, we find God originates marriage by joining the man and woman in an exclusive one flesh union. In the fall, sin corrupts not only our relationship with God, but also with one another. Sin touches every part of our marriages, not only sin, but everything that death brings, weakness, um, illness, uh, limitations, ignorance, every limitation that we face is due to the fall. Through redemption in Christ, we receive new life and the power of the Spirit so that we can live out our marriages now displaying the gospel, we'll see. At the consummation, we will not be married, but we will experience the fullness of the glory to which our marriages point. The purpose of marriage is tied to the purpose of God for all creation, to gather a people for his glory. The grand purpose culminates in the joining of his son and his bride, the church, at the uh, marriage supper of the Lamb in the book of Revelation. So the Bible begins with a marriage that will point to the culmination. The Bible will conclude with a marriage, the joining of Jesus and his people together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a book on marriage that I really recommend to you, I think maybe... um, Daniel, you said that you guys gave this out at one point or something, by Ray Ortland, and uh, it's called Marriage and the Mystery of the Gospel, and I love this quote here by him. He says, the first cosmos was created as the home of a young couple named Adam and Eve. The new cosmos will be created as the eternal home of the son and his bride. It is not as though marriage is just one theme among others in the Bible. Instead, marriage is the wraparound concept for the entire Bible, within which the other themes find their places. And if the Bible is telling a story of married romance, no wonder the demonic powers would forbid marriage, as we find in uh, 1 uh, 1 Timothy 4. Every happy marriage whispers their doom and proclaims Christ's triumph. I love the way he says that. Sometimes you hear a lot about spiritual warfare. Well, one of the things in spiritual warfare is we can grow as husbands and wives that reflect the gospel, and that guts the power uh, of, of the enemy. You can see why there would be an assault on marriage, why the enemy would assault marriage in our culture. Uh, why would he do that? Well, because the marriage of a godly man and woman joined together uh, reflect Christ and the church. They point to the ultimate end, Christ and the church, the point, purpose of our marriage. And so you could see why there would be an all-out assault at every level against uh, our marriages. Well, that's a little bit of the storyline of the Bible and how marriage connects to this and how we start to work our way towards understanding the why of marriage. We can't, I don't think, uh, we can't just pick a text here or there uh, and say, well, this, you know, encapsulates all. We really have to get the big picture 
of the entire scripture. So let's talk about marriage and creation, because this message is the glory of message, uh, glory of marriage. So we're talking about creation here, the first stage and how God created marriage. So Genesis 1 and 2 portrays marriage as it ought to be. Creation is the ought. Life as it ought to be, the way God created it to be, and so is marriage. And we see that God, first of all, creates marriage. God created everything, and uh, Genesis 1.31 tells us, uh, this, if you have a Bible or a device, we'll be looking some here at uh, Genesis 1 and 2. I have, uh, some, of the, some of these verses are printed in your outline, some aren't. But in, after creating everything in Genesis 1.31, it says, God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening and morning uh, the sixth day. So God creates everything by the word of his power. He assesses everything and says that it is good. Uh, he's placed, ultimately we'll see in the next chapter, he places Adam in a, in a perfect garden. He lives in a perfect environment. He's called to work in this garden paradise, to work and keep uh, the garden. So work is a high and holy calling that comes before the fall. Uh, he has perfect communion with God. So everything seems perfect. But it's a little bit surprising when we read that first chapter and the last verse that I just read, uh, that everything's good. It's a little bit surprising in chapter 2 when we meet something that is not good. Everything is good except in chapter 2. Within the very good creation, something is not good. Verses 18 of chapter 2 says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. It's not good. There, there are two ways in Hebrew to say not good. Um, this is originally written in Hebrew. There's two ways to say it's not good. One is to say that something lacks good. Something lacks good. So chips without salsa. So something is missing. Something is needed. Something, or in Texas for us, it's chips and queso. So something is missing, uh, and it needs something to sort of complete it. Chips without salsa. It's not as good as it could be. But that's not the word that's used for not good here. It's the other one. The other way to say not good in Hebrew is positively bad. So when it said it was not good for him to be alone, it's not just being communicated that he needed something else to go along. It was positively bad that Adam was alone in the creation. Even in paradise, it's not good for him to be alone because he's created in chapter 1 in the image of God. And God is a relational being. The triune God's a relational being. And so we are created as relational beings with a capacity to communicate, a capacity to love, a capacity to create, not out of nothing, but a capacity to create. So we, we bear the image of God on our lives. And so Adam was created in the, with this relational capacity, yet he's alone. He's given this responsibility to work and to keep, yet he is alone. Uh, and so God uh, designs marriage he creates this one relationship to be the most intimate, loving, unifying relationship that will be in all the creation. Number three, companionship is at the heart of the marriage relationship. So I want to talk a little bit about the idea of companionship. And this gets at the why. We're starting to get a little bit more at the why. So he's alone. It's positively bad uh, that there's no one else in creation. 
And uh, we see that marriage is God's answer to Adam's not good state, uh, his not good condition of being alone. How does God address that situation? Well, he addresses it in 2.18 again. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. So God creates another person, another human. And, and the one word description for this provision from God, we could say, is a companion or companionship. The word companion means a mate or a match for something. Eve is, in one, one uh, translation says, she is created as a suitable helper. The ESV, which we're reading here, says she's created fit for him. The word fit means she corresponds to him. She corresponds. It is, uh, she complements him, we could say. Compliment with an E. Uh, not the I, not like, um, you know, I like your, like some of the stuff last night, I like your hair. Not that kind of compliment. But more like, I fit together with you. Where we complement one another, we correspond to one another, we fit together emotionally, mentally, spiritually, physically, we fit, we complement one another. So if we really begin with God's stated reason for creating Eve, what's the stated reason? Well, it was not good for Adam to be alone. It was positively bad. If we, if we start with that stated reason, then we'll conclude that a fundamental purpose of marriage is companionship. Derek Kidner, who's a, a well-known um, Old Testament scholar, he says in his commentary on Genesis, companionship is presented in Eden as a primary human need, which God proceeded to meet by creating not Adam's duplicate, but his opposite and complement, and by uniting the two, male and female, in perfect personal harmony. Now, again, obviously, uh, this, this message is not about culture wars or anything like that. This is about Christian marriage, which I think is the answer to the culture war, that we present a better story. And often we don't. We bark and are angry, and we don't present a compelling example. And so sometimes the world looks and says, that just looks like a bunch of angry people. Um, but I think one of the most compelling answers in the, to the culture war is that we go back to the scripture and ask the why of God's creation and uh, of marriage, and we seek to implement that ourselves in the church so that we look different and that we present a compelling example to the world so that uh, when, as First Peter says, you know, when you are asked to give a reason for the hope that's within you, when you're asked about your marriage, uh, when someone notices something different, you can give an answer with gentleness and respect, First Peter says. Uh, and, and I think it's really important that we, we gather this truth, that the, the, the complementarity, I think that's a word, of male and female joined together in the marriage is very much God's design because it's going to reveal uh, something as we're going to see tomorrow when we talk about redemption, it's going to reveal something glorious. Well, I'll let the cat out of the bag. It's going to reveal the gospel, Christ's love for the church and the church's response to him. So the, the marriage pictures something else and is to be a signpost. Well, I'm getting ahead to the redemption, but it's a signpost to the gospel. Our marriages are a signpost 
to God. And so one of the best things we can do, I think, in this day to take a stand in our culture, obviously we can do a number of things. But one thing we can do, and perhaps the most important thing we can do, is what we're doing here this weekend. is seeking to understand God's plan for our marriage and seeking to grow in God's plan for our marriage so that we more and more um, are light in the darkness. The church is a city set on a hill that be hidden. So thanks for being here because it communicates that you care about your marriage and that you care about pleasing the Lord with your marriage and that you care about setting an example if you have children for your children in your marriage. Um, it, it's, it's, it's so, so important. Not sure I get off on all that, but at any rate, companionship. Uh, companionship is such a, uh, such a key issue uh, in marriage. And I want to talk about the idea of a covenant of companionship because I introduced the word companionship, but it's not used in Genesis. It is, however, used elsewhere in the Bible to describe marriage. In Malachi 2.14, there's this situation where God rebukes a group of Jewish husbands uh, because they dissolve their marriages. And this is what the prophet says to them. We have this in your outline. Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and wife by covenant. So he takes two thoughts there and says, she, your wife is fundamentally a companion. Your husband is your companion. So it, that's at the core nature. Uh, we'll see in a minute the one flesh relationship, the joining of one, the, the fitting together of helper with of Eve, who is helper to Adam. Uh, and it is not only a companion, but it's a companion by covenant. So it's a unique uh, companionship as well. If the word companion sounds soft in terms of a core idea for marriage well here it's not because this is a companion that you have entered into a holy binding agreement to live your life together with is death do you part to be one flesh or to have a marriage to be joined together so that everything in your life um, is is together as one as it were one entity in marriage and so they made a covenant which is a sober, holy vow before God to live with one companion in a unique way amidst all the others. So if companion sounds like a weak term for marriage, a covenant of companion certainly doesn't. It gives kind of a fuller picture. Paul Tripp wrote a book called What Did You Expect? I think it's been reprinted, and I don't know the new title, but it's be. Do you know that, Daniel? There's a new book. Somebody know the title? Yeah, there's a new book. It's this book, but it has a new title. So I don't know what that is. But this is the older book. It's called What Did You Expect? Um, and he wrote, marriage really is a human covenant of companionship. God wasn't so much giving Adam a physical helper for work in the garden as he was giving him a companion. God knew that he had created a social being. And because of Adam's social hardwiring, it was not good for him to live without the companionship of one made from him and made like him. You could argue that this is the most basic reason for marriage. God created a lifelong companion for Adam, and his relationship with Eve would exist on earth as a visible reminder of God's love relationship with people as the God-ordained means by which the earth would be populated as God designed. So, in this book, Paul Tripp is arguing there that the most, 
probably rudimentary idea about at marriage, if we took, drilled down to the core and said, what is the why? Well, a, certainly a biblical answer for that would be that God created man and woman um, to complement one another in this unique, lifelong covenant of companionship, joining them together. And obviously, it's gonna, we're going to talk about how it reflects the work of God as well. But that's certainly a core idea. Marriage is also a unique and exclusive companionship. I think I've already said that, but it's, ex- it's exclusive. There's no- nothing else like it. God makes Adam uh, in, the, in the garden. He makes him aware of his need. Now, the text doesn't say this, but I think it's implied. The text gives the implication that in chapter 2, uh, Adam is given, after he, before Eve is created, he's given the responsibility of naming the animals. And in uh, cha- uh, chapter 2, verse 19 it says, out of the ground the Lord God had formed and every bird of the heavens <clears throat> and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Um, and every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and all the birds and all the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, here's the was not found a helper fit for him. So it's as if when all the animals are coming through and being named, none of them fit Adam. Perhaps in the back of Adam's mind, he's looking for a companion, and it wasn't to be found. Not even a Maltese, as we heard last night. Not a companion. (laughs) Not a biblical companion. Uh, You know, you can put the picture on the wall, but that is not your companion, gentlemen. (laughs) That was hilarious. Uh, So there was not a companion fit for him. And so we go from there... Uh, to see that God creates a companion for him. And I wonder if in this idea that for Adam, as he's looking at all the animals, if he's seeing his need for a unique companion. It's a moment to really sense his need for a companion. I would say as a husband, I don't, I'm not always in touch with my need for my wife as a companion. I can get caught up in all kinds of stuff. And sometimes my wife will say this to me. She will say, um, this happens at various times. She'll say, you know what? I don't feel we're connecting. And I'm thinking, well, we had dinner together. You know, we ate a meal together. And, you know, I'm thinking, well, I feel like we're connected, you know. We watched something on Netflix together, you know. So, uh, <laughs> uh, but what she's saying when she says, I don't feel like we're connected. And I've learned over time, there's a few younger married couples here, I've learned over time that the best moment is not to be an attorney and build a defense for all the ways I can demonstrate that we have connected. That's not, no, I need to ask her. So, well, help me, what do you mean by that? How do you, why do you feel that? Can you give me, you know, let me in on what you're feeling or sensing. That's the right approach, but it's taken many years to to learn that. Um, So when she's saying, I don't feel that we're connecting, what she's saying is that we're joined in a relationship. We're about to see it's called the one flesh relationship. We're joined in this relationship where we're, we share all of life. We don't lose our individual person, persons, but we really share all of life together. What, what your burdens are become my burdens and vice versa. What, what, you're, think, what, what, what you're dreaming about, those become my dreams and vice versa. And... Uh, you know, what you're experiencing at this time in your life. And so what she's saying in that moment is, I feel like we're, 
we're in the same household, we're side by side, but we're not really covenant companions uh, living out the solution that God gave us for not being alone. You can be married and have something of an alone existence at times. There could be seasons where you feel alone in your marriage. You can begin to function, um, you know, just very externally where you're kind of going through the motions in a, and you're, you're kind of walking along parallel, but you're not connected. You're not this. You're just like this instead of this. And that's what she's meaning. She's more in tune to that than I am. And I need a helper, companion, fit for me, who's helping me see that. And then we're able to talk about it and then try to, you know, by God's grace, ask forgiveness where there's been uh, negligence or sin or something on my selfishness on my part. And um, then, you know, receive the grace of God to readjust and, and move forward. But that's what's behind that idea. I don't feel connected. It's this subjective sense of what the, glo- the glory of marriage ain't happening in our house right now. And that's, that's because this is what we were created for. And you detect that at times when it happens. Well, God makes Eve from Adam and brings him to her. It's, it's an interesting account, verse 21 and 22. So we're back to the first marriage here, creation. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. So it's powerful, this picture, that he creates Eve. Adam's created from the dirt. But Eve is created from Adam just to communicate this unique closeness, this unique connection, this unique union. No one else is made like from Adam in this way. There's no other connection, humanly speaking, like this connection. And God brings Eve to Adam as a gift. And when he sees her, it's the first poetic expression, I think we could say, in all the Bible. In my Bible, it's sort of written out, you know, in a stanza, like it is a a poetic statement. It's not written in the paragraph form of a narrative. Uh, of the narrative. It says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman because she was taken out of man. He's saying, she's what I desire. She is what I need. She's like me and compliments me in some very desirable ways. So she's like me, but not identical to me. She's like me with some differences, and those are very magnetic, attractive differences that draw us together. She's bone of my bones, but she, she's, she's taken out of me. We're close, we're joined, and yet there is, there is this difference uh, between us. Well, God declares this companionship, again, to be exclusive in verse 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So from the beginning, he's he's saying uh, marriage will be a unique, exclusive companionship that will supersede every other relationship. So prior to this time, um, well, they didn't have earthly parents, obviously, but moving, moving forward, the parental relationship is intimate and close and unique, right? But once someone gets married, then that relationship supersedes the marriage. And, 
for the first readers of this text, that would have been somewhat surprising. And even in some cultures today, there remains this parental relationship where even marriage decisions are made around you know, parental wishes, which may go farther than arranging the marriage. It may continue. And so God is saying, no, there's a leaving, a breaking away, a, a, a severing in the sense of the uniqueness of that relationship. And now you have another unique relationship that supersedes that. You maintain a relationship with your parents, for sure. Always called to honor them. And yet there is this new relationship, this bond. You're to cleave, you're to unite, um, and to become one with her. Now, the one flesh relationship certainly includes sexual union, but the term probably carries an idea of something much broader than that, which is what I was talking about when my wife says, I don't feel like we're connecting right now, or we have been connecting recently. It's saying that God unites into a bond and creates an entity that was not there. So there's still Adam and all of his personality and uniqueness in relating to God. There's still Eve and all her uniqueness and her personality. But now there's this new entity called one flesh or marriage. They're joining together and there's this new sort of new thing that exists. It's us. There's this us as one that now exists. And when we get married, that's what happens. We, we experience one flesh when the marriage is consummated. So there's one flesh, there's the sexual union that happens in marriage. But there's also this other connection that is, um, it's almost hard to describe at one level. We are one, you know? Uh, there is this sense that we are now uh, permanently joined in a relationship that did not exist, did not exist when we were dating until we vowed and consummated our marriage, that, that the commitment and vow before God and others uh, and the joining of our, li- our, our lives together. And now it's one. We have one of everything. We share one bed and one, you know, one set of finances and, and one, um, we do our own things, but we still have one schedule at one level. There is the marriage schedule. We're ordering our lives with the other in view. I never just set a schedule again on my own, without another. So the way we spend time, the way we spend finances, the way we spend our lives, the decisions we make, they're they're one. At least larger decisions certainly are, aren't they? God's purpose for marriage is revealed in their perfect companionship. In verse 25, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. So prior to the fall, companionship was natural. There's no fear, there's no shame, because there's no sin. And so their relationship is one of 100% openness before God and before one another. That's why we can't even imagine what that was like, and we can't even imagine the ought. We live in the is of the fall. So we know how life is and how marriage is. We can't even imagine what it would have been like to know the openness and freedom and intimacy that they experienced. So from creation, it's clear that God designed marriage as a covenant of companionship to be lived out beautifully in a one flesh complementarity. I think that's really the heart of marriage. And then we could add with the purpose of pointing to the work of Christ and the church. They were naked and not afraid. That that means they were vulnerable 
and comfortable with that. They were open, open books. Now, um, these phrases, I said, this phrase, one flesh, points to more than the sexual relationship, but it certainly doesn't point to any less than that. It certainly includes that. And uh, as we get into some more practical things, I'm not going to speak uh, a lot about uh, sex on, on the retreat here. I don't have a lot of material to talk about on that. But I, di- I did want to say this right now, that if you, if, if you find yourself in your sexual relationship as very much living in the is and not the ought, meaning uh, what, what is described here of the glory of marriage and the glory of the first relationship is not what we're experiencing. Uh, we're open and connected um, and um, fulfilled even in a fallen world. Um, we're not experiencing the joy that the Lord has for us in intimacy, emotional intimacy, uh, and physical intimacy as well. I, I just want to say that I would just encourage you to broach that topic and get some help if this is an ongoing challenge for you. I thought about just being open. I just want to make a pastoral point here that this can be a topic that um, maybe happens in premarital counseling. You talk about sex. But oftentimes, post-wedding, it just doesn't get talked about in any very meaningful way. And so what I find is a lot of us live with secrets and frustrations and challenges that there are answers for and that there is help by the grace of God for. Um, But it's because we don't live naked and unashamed. We live after the serpent came to the garden. And so now we're ashamed and fearful and um, embarrassed and what will people think and I can't talk about that well the glory the way marriage is ought to be is that in an appropriate in an appropriate context we should be able to talk about that first of all with our spouse have open communication there and secondly if we're having trouble with someone that could could help us and so I don't know if you know this but a lot of people struggle in this area so if you're struggling I want you to know is you're not alone uh, others do as well, and there is help. I mean, this last week, I was just having a conversation with a very bold brother who just came to me and said, can I ask some questions and get some help? This guy's got a very good marriage. He's been married a while. He's got kids, which was part of the challenges with his sex relationship with his wife, um, is that there's a lot going on. Um, but he just said to me, hey, I need some help because here's how our relationship is going. Um, someone, it feels like someone's always compromising and frustrated because we're not synced. We have a different schedule. We have a, a, a desire schedule. We have a different frequency schedule, uh, meaning one of us would prefer uh, to be together for sexual intimacy more than the other. So it's always a matter of someone saying, if someone says no, then someone's frustrated. And if someone says yes and they didn't want to, then they're frustrated. We just can't get it synced up. We lay out a busy life, all this going on. But how refreshing that someone would just say, like, who, who, what married couple hadn't experienced that at some point? Um, if not a lot, at least some. Who, who hasn't experienced that? Only in the garden was everybody on the same schedule perfectly at all, at all time. And then we go to heaven and we're not even married. So, you know, that, that was kind of lost. That one really is lost, being synced sexually. That was gone <laughs> perfectly uh, at the fall, I guess. I guess we don't ever get that back. But uh, nonetheless, by redemption, we can grow. So I just, one thing I did want to say about sex is that we're far from the Garden of Eden. All of us are. You are not alone. If you have trouble talking about it, you can get some help. 
And if you have trouble after talking about it, there's help for you, no matter how young, how old you are. And as you get older, different, different challenges arise that weren't there when you were younger, perhaps. Um, so I just wanted to say that find a trusted couple you could talk with, maybe your small group leader, a pastor, someone that you trust that's wise that you could just open up and say, hey, can we, can we ask you something? You know, ask your spouse. Guys, ask your spouse if she's comfortable with you talking with a, a brother that's mature that could help you or you to get maybe to get better as a, as a couple. But anyway, I just did want to say that because I think we look at this naked and uh, not ashamed one flesh. They had a perfect sex life and a perfect emotional life and a perfect communication life and a perfect, he was always vulnerable, ladies. And so it was just perfect. And we can look at that and go, oh, yeah, well, that's, that's really nice, but there's nothing. But we live after the fall. Uh, but I just want to say, by redemption, by the grace of God, and by community, here's what God gives us to grow, to become more, um, to live out a one flesh relationship more fruitfully. God gives us his word, his spirit, and here's an important one, his people. His people. And so I just felt, I don't know if that's a prophetic sense, but I just felt like somebody needed to hear, we should get some help, and it's okay. And did you know there's a lot of other people struggling with the same thing we are? Uh, and that maybe that would give someone permission and, and encouragement uh, to bring this topic up with your spouse if you need to or with someone else if, that's, if you need some help there. Well, let's wrap up with this kind of sort of our marriage and God's story. So the importance of understanding the why of marriage. We started by, we don't, we, we often want to start by let's define our roles. Let's talk about our challenges. But we don't first think carefully about God's created design. Uh, you may not have given a lot of thought to God's design for marriage. If you haven't, I'd recommend you take Genesis 1 and 2, uh, particularly the end of 1 and 2, but you just take and read it and jot down everything you learn about God's design for you in your life and God's design for marriage. Jot down some things. You may find some things that you hadn't thought about. What are, what are the key terms? What does God do in these chapters, and what does he call us to do? Um, some of us may have thought, some of you may be going, okay, everything you've said, you haven't said one idea that's new to me. Um, that could be because I'm not very new and creative or uh, because you know a lot or I don't know. I, but maybe, maybe this is all so basic to you. But here's the reality, that in every marriage we can experience drift. We may know things, but living that out and experiencing it is very different. And we may just have drifted. And we need to reconnect and have a conversation about some things. You know what? Two summers ago, I remember being at the beach, and I, had, uh, I was swimming one day with my oldest grandson. So he's probably 10 at the time, maybe-ish. He's, he's, a, he's a decent, good swimmer. And we're at the beach, and there was no, like, uh, riptide, riptide or un, undertow or anything. It was safe to be out there for me to leave him. And so I just said, um, hey, uh, you know, Parker, I'm going to go up. After playing in the water, I'm going to go up and sit on the beach. Uh, don't go out far, just stay here, I'll be watching you. Uh, but just remember this, Parker, there is a move, so the water is moving like this way, and it's just, con you don't see it, it's just subtle, it's just moving you this way. So I said, look at the blue umbrella, look at Pops, that's what he calls me, look at Pops and the blue umbrella, and just keep your eye, you know, play a little bit, but keep your eye, whatever you're doing, because otherwise you're going to end up, you know, way down there, uh, at, you know, out of, out of my sight after a while, you'll just flow down if you're not paying attention and I think that's a really good marriage picture as well, that we need a focal point for our marriage to keep our eyes on it. And I think it's uh, one of the focal points for sure 
is the first two chapters of Genesis, chapter 2 in particular. It is why, what is the purpose of our marriage? And it's not just enough to say, yeah, I can give a definition of one flesh, or I could give a definition of naked and not ashamed, but how am I growing to experience that? How am I growing as a companion in my marriage? Let me say something to husbands and something to wives, and then I'll let you all say something to one another. Um, Husbands, letter B on your outline there. Is your wife feeling the warmth of your companionship? You should ask her that. Do you feel my heart in our companionship? As husbands, we're to take initiative and responsibility for ensuring that our wives are not feeling relationally isolated or distanced from us. Um, It's easy to live on autopilot. It's easy to engage only when she raises her need, fellas. That's true for some of us. I assume everything's okay until she tells me differently. Well, that's, that's not the design God has for us, you know. That's not like the lowest common denominator, fix a problem when it shows up. But it's to be more proactive in cultivating that companionship. Um, how am I cultivating a deepening friendship Am I cultivating spiritual fellowship where we're knowing one another in our relationship with God? Um, Is there kind of a whole life companionship with our wives? Uh, It doesn't mean we do everything together. She's got her life. She's got her responsibilities. She's got her friends. She's got her stuff. I've got my responsibilities, my friends. But, But they're never totally separate. Because we're one flesh, they're always joined at some level. At least what matters to her matters to me. Ortland writes in his book, In Marrying a Man... In marrying, a man joins himself to his wife at a profound level. He does not ask her to move his way, to do all the adjusting towards him, but he takes the initiative to move towards his wife, enfolding her into his heart, bonding with her as with no other human being, not even his children. He rejoices to identify with his wife as Adam did with Eve. This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. At every level of his being, a husband should be wholeheartedly devoted to his wife, loyal to his wife, steadfast toward his wife, as toward no other. So is my wife, am I cultivating our covenant of companionship? Or am I just cruising until something, you know, uh, something happens? Wives and companionship. Wives, is your husband experiencing your devotion, your spiritual fellowship, your same thing, whole life companionship? Now, I don't think I'll be bringing any revelatory message to say this. Oftentimes, wives are more hardwired for relational companionship than men. I I think that's common. Not always, uh, not always, but, but often that's the case. However, relating to your husband as a helper fit for him, it's possible that a wife may sort of miss the companionship target by assuming that his needs are identical to yours or that his relational preferences are identical to yours. So here's a question to ask. How can you cultivate companionship with your husband in a way that he desires besides sex? How can you cultivate companionship with your husband in a way that he, that may be part of it, but beyond that, in a way that he desires? Because sometimes ladies who are wired for relationship and companionship sometimes want their husband to act like their girlfriends, 
And there may be some of that that he should do in terms of the emotional connection, drawing you out, listening, really caring, um, you know, absolutely. There may be some things there that, that he's not doing that they are doing. But he's your unique covenant companion. So he should be asking. We started there. He should be asking, how can I move towards you? Do you feel the warmth of my companionship? But you should be asking the same thing. How could I be moving towards him? I saw this picture that it just sticks with me. I don't know if you get, any of you know who Ray Ortland is, but he wrote the book that some of you got that I've quoted from two or three times here. So Ray Ortland is maybe, he's a pastor, retired pastor. He might be, he's early 70s. And so I saw a picture of him and his wife. His wife's, her name is Janie. I've, I don't, I've met him, I've never met her. But when I've seen her, she just comes off as a very dignified, that's a word I might use, very dignified uh, woman. And... Um, you know, uh, not overly proper, I don't mean that, but just a very dignified woman of God. If you saw her, that's what you would think. And uh, so I saw this picture, I think it was on Instagram or something, because he's this massive hunter. He's like into killing deer. That's what he wants to do. So I saw this picture, and he's like in a deer stand, and he is head to toe in camouflage. You can't see anything. His, His face, everything is camouflage. And then he had a picture that went wider in the deer stand, and dignified Janny is in full camouflage sitting there next to him. And I was like, I, I had to do a double take. I was like, what? It just did not, I was just blown away. But I thought that is a picture. I'm not saying you have to fish with your husband. It might be a very bad idea. But, <laughs> but that's a picture. I feel certain she's not like, when does deer season open, honey? <laughs> I feel certain she was like, I'm his companion. And that means that some things that interest him need to be interesting me. I thought that's a beautiful picture. Uh, and maybe they were having meaningful whisper conversation up there. I don't know. Maybe they were connecting heart to heart and he was entering into her world. I don't know. But it looked to me like they're hunting deer and she's up there, you know. <laughs> and uh, I just think that's a very, very powerful image that my wife is not a big football fan. She understands football and uh, you know, will at, at certain times she's she's tuned in, but she doesn't watch weekly uh, like I do when I'm watching the Cowboys. Hold your applause, and uh, so. But there are t- plenty of times. I want we have an empty house, empty nest now. So unless I have friends or family over, um, I'm watching alone. My boys would watch, but they don't live in our city; they live elsewhere now. So I'm often watching uh, if I don't have somebody over alone, and. Uh, and it's not good for a man to be alone. So she, she will come and sit by me. And as she might be reading something on her tablet or, I don't know, playing a little, some little word game on her tablet, whatever, uh, and just kind of glancing up. But she's there present with me. And I thought, that I just like her to be, to, to, to bear my griefs and sorrows and on, a, <laughs> and on occasion my joys. Like in the 90s, which we were, you know... When we were good, but uh, so do you, do you see that picture? So guys, we're going to need to get out of what's natural to us and understand our wives' hearts. But wives, I think the companionship thing may mean that you need to get out of what's most familiar to you at points as well. And I'm, saying, I'm not saying watching football and hunting is deep heart connection. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that's part of companionship as well uh, that, that communicates something. And we need the deep connection in conversation and intimacy as well. 
Uh, God's good purpose for our companionship to wrap up right here and then we'll break. Regardless of where we find ourselves at this moment, we need to know that God has a good plan for our marriages. We haven't discussed what's wrong with our marriages. I I dipped into it a little bit. That's next session. Uh, But we all know that marriage, the way it ought to be in Genesis 2, is not the way marriage is today. We all know that. But there's good news ahead. The gospel tells us that God's forgiveness and his power are gifts to move us into a deeper one flesh companionship. God's story's not finished yet. We're just in Genesis 2, but neither is your story finished either. So we're going to look through uh, the, the fall and then redemption, and we'll say a little bit about consummation as well. So there's some discussion questions on here. You cannot discuss all these in the time we have. So my recommendation would be, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll just read them. Uh, Describe to your spouse what you think a covenant of companionship should look like in your marriage. Are your expectations in sync? If not, what steps can you take to identify your vision for your marriage? Unify your vision for your marriage. Number two, identify a couple of ways in which you experience fruitful companionship as a couple. Number three, ask your spouse if there are ways in which he or she feels disconnected or alone in your marriage. Ask how you can be a better companion in those areas. Number four, what things are currently competing with your priority to cultivate your companionship? What changes can you make in your life together to cultivate companionship? Uh, Number five, read Genesis 2, 24 through 25. What do you think it means for a married couple to be one flesh? What is the significance of Adam and Eve being naked and not ashamed? How do these verses speak to you and to your marriage? So we've got 20 minutes. And then you've got all afternoon if you want to come back to them. But this would be my suggestion. Here's a companionship exercise. Guys, you pick one of those questions. I can already know what it is. It's what are we doing well in? Okay, I got your question. I know I've been on a marriage retreat. Uh, so so uh, every, guys, you pick a question. Bonus points if you don't pick question number two. No, it's, it's good to have evidences of grace. What's going well? That's a good question. So guy, you pick a question. Ma'am, lady, wife. You pick a question, and you can each, at least y'all can both answer two questions in this time. How about that? And if you have more time, cover whatever else you want. And you don't have to do that. You're on your own. But that's a suggestion. Each pick a question. And I think we're staying in this room. Is that right, Daniel? So, or, so because someone will dismiss us to lunch uh, in a little bit. So we've got about 20 minutes. And so if you want to break up as couples throughout the rooms uh, up here, or I, I guess we can probably have enough privacy um, in here. So we'll do that. Break up, have, go over, one, each pick a question, and then uh, we'll call you back together and dismiss you to lunch momentarily.